You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Matthew chapter 11 is where we are in our study of the Word of God tonight. Matthew chapter 11. We've come to the seventh verse. We're going to read to verse 15. Now as these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And violent men take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John and if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah, who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's go to our God together in prayer and ask his blessing. Lord, everything that we have to do with in ministry is weighty. Even our corporate gatherings, though they are joyful and refreshing, encouraging, are designed for the ongoing exhortation of your people. These meeting times are weighty. Sitting before me this night are men and women, young people, who will spend eternity in heaven or in hell. Some sitting before me are regenerate. They are yours. They love you and know you. No doubt, Lord, some sitting here tonight are unregenerate, perhaps even believe themselves to be saved, but are not, are natural, without the Spirit, without your Son, and in need of life. There are believers here this night, Lord, who are struggling, even as we were reminded this morning, struggling, perhaps in doubt, or struggling in their faith, and their need is repentance and the humility necessary to receive the help that you offer. These are weighty things. And to take your word into our mouths and declare it, to preach it, to explain it, to apply it, it's weighty. Teachers will be held to a stricter judgment and accountability will be given for what we've done with your word. These are weighty things. So that, Lord, we don't dare take one more step forward in any act of worship without acknowledging our need for you. 
and asking you to strengthen us in such a way that we would please you and glorify you in your Son. We thank you that you regard us mercifully. We thank you that we are indeed clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus, that we stand in your grace. But as children who reverence their Father, we want, Lord, to honor you properly. And so, Lord, would you strengthen us to that end, both now in the preaching of your word and the hearing of it. Help us to declare it in a way that honors you. Help us to hear it in a way that honors you, that reverences you. And then may you do your work in our hearts. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. John asks a question that is surprising to us, given his previous testimony to Jesus. Here he is in a dark prison, shut up for months, a lot of time on his hands to think, to reflect, to wonder. His circumstances don't seem to be matching up with what he expected. And so with an apprehension, with a concern that exists still in faith, a believer's kind of doubting, a believer's kind of struggle, he sends disciples to the Lord Jesus, his disciples, John's disciples, to the Lord Jesus and he asked this question that surprises us, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for someone else? Jesus, did I have it right? When I said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When I said that you are the Messiah, did I have it right? And our Lord, with great compassion and grace, answers John's disciples and he sends them back to John and he says, tell him what you're seeing and hearing. Tell him that the blind receive sight and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Giving John a report of what Jesus is actually doing, but in words that would link up in John's mind with Old Testament promise. Our Lord gives assurances to John both based on his own activity and based on Scripture. John, you need to know that what I'm doing perfectly accords with what Scripture said the Messiah would be doing because you don't have it wrong. I am the one. There is no need to look for someone else. What a great reminder of our Lord's compassion upon His servants. Even in our struggles, He loves us. Even in our struggles, He's there for us. As we said this morning, it's not the messenger who upholds the Messiah, it's the Messiah who upholds the messenger, who sustains him. And so it is with us. The story of our lives is not what great servants we are for Jesus, but what a great Savior he is for us. How he's forgiven our sins and how he's set us free and how he sustains us in faith to the very end. If he should let go of us, we would certainly perish, but he doesn't let go of us, and no one is able to snatch us out of his hand. What a great Savior we have. But now Jesus does something else in verse 7. He, he's not just been compassionate toward John, but now he reveals his pleasure in John, his pleasure in his servant. He praises him. He pays tribute to him. Now as these men, that's John's disciples, were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. 
Why is our Lord doing this? Why does Jesus speak to the crowds about John? I think there are multiple reasons that come to mind. Let me just mention a few. First of all, it makes clear, doesn't it, that Jesus and John are not at odds. John has asked an honest question. Jesus has given a truthful answer. They're not at odds. They are together. The messenger has served the Messiah. The Messiah affirms the messenger. And this tribute will make that clear. Makes clear that Jesus does not think of John as a defector. As we said this morning, one of the great encouraging things out of John's experience is the reminder that believers can struggle with doubt. Extraordinary believers can struggle with doubt. So John is not a defector. He's just a struggling believer. And this tribute makes that clear. It makes clear that Jesus distinguishes between a a kind of doubt that is present because of weakness versus a kind of doubt that exists in rebellion against God. John is struggling because of circumstances and expectations that were not fulfilled, but he's not rebelling against God. He's not rebelling against Scripture. He's not rebelling against Jesus. After all, he sends his disciples to Jesus to get the answer. And so our Lord makes clear that there's more than one kind of doubt in the world. And, And when you talk about doubts that are due to weakness, the kind of doubt that exists in the realm of belief, that's something that Jesus has compassion for and he helps us with. This tribute makes that clear. But perhaps above all, what Jesus is doing is he is honoring the faithful way that John has fulfilled his calling. John was not just a prophet, he was a prophesied prophet. The Bible told the people of God that John was coming. Not just that the Messiah was coming, but that his forerunner was coming. And I love the way that John appears in the Gospel of John. John the Baptist appears in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, verse 6, when it says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. God sends this man with a specific role to play in salvation history, with a a weighty responsibility. And John the Baptist was faithful to his calling. Jesus wants to make that clear. John has been faithful to his calling. This is why he's in prison, because he's a faithful messenger. He suffers even as Jesus speaks, not because he's done something wrong, but precisely because he was a man of God. So after upholding his messenger, sending a word that would strengthen his faith, Jesus now praises his messenger and presents us with the clearest picture we have in Scripture of the character of John the Baptist. Of all the study you might do about this man, this is, this is the place to go. If you want to know who he was, our Lord presents us with a portrait of a man of God. And in so doing, he gives us a picture of the character of godliness in general terms. There's a sense in which we can look at John and then think about what it means for you and for me to serve Jesus, and we get a clear picture of the kind of character necessary in each one of us if we're to be faithful to our calling. What are we to be as men and women of God? What has God called us to be? How can we be faithful to what God has called us to be? The character necessary to that you see in John the Baptist, and Jesus 
highlights that. He underscores it. So tonight, I want us to think from these verses, I want us to think about five characteristics of a godly servant. Five characteristics of a godly servant. The first thing we see, we see in verse 7, the humility of a man of God. The humility of a man of God. Never forget, godliness exists where humility exists. There is no such thing as growth in godliness where there's not growth in humility. No one is godly who is not learning humility. And so from the context, this is why I say verse 7, because we're just really paying attention to the setting, to the context. From the context, we're reminded of the humility of John the Baptist. He's asked a question. Jesus is not offended by the question. Now, Jesus exhorts him not to doubt, warns him, in fact, compassionately, gently warns him about his doubt. Don't be offended by me, John. Blessed is he who's not offended by me. Trust me, even when things are not going the way you expected, when I don't seem to be what you expected, trust me. So he warns him about his doubt, and he answers his doubt with the truth of Scripture. Yet in the very same context, he praises John. Why? Because because John is asking this question in a way that still speaks of who he is. And who he is is a humble man, a humble servant. Never forget that John expressed his struggle. You know, he didn't have to. Could have remained in that prison cell never uttering a word of the concerns that he had. But he expressed his struggle. Remember that he has already publicly identified Jesus as the Messiah. If you're a proud man, if you're an insincere man, if you're a self-exalting man, you would never voice the possibility that you might have been mistaken, that you might have it wrong. Now, John was not mistaken. He didn't have it wrong. But he was willing to go to Jesus with his fears He was willing to go to Jesus in a way that allowed Jesus to correct him if he was wrong and to answer his fears. That's humility. That's a humble man. And this is not new for John, is it? This is not new. This is his character. You look at the life and ministry of John the Baptist and you see humility. Just a quick side note. Here is John in his moment of crisis And the character that's on display, even when he's struggling, is the same character that was on display before he was struggling. Godliness is something that it's like you're making down payments, not just on the present, but on the future, when godliness is going to be like treasure to you. I mean, when you need maturity... When you need stability, when you need an understanding of Scripture, when you need a heart that is inclined to God, when you're in a moment of crisis and you've got to draw out of the well of character, you can't draw on something that doesn't exist. 
And so we're meeting with the same man, with the same character. He's just in a moment of struggle, in a moment of crisis. The godliness the Lord has taught him is going to help him. Even in this moment, John's humility was on display as he joyfully pointed away from himself to the Lord Jesus. When finally, as he did his job, he worked himself out of a job. He kept pointing to the Lord Jesus, and then there came a time when his own disciples began to leave John and to follow Jesus. In fact, some were upset about it. Some complained about it. And if you listen to John the Baptist, he rejoiced in it. John said, he must increase. I must decrease. This is my role. This is my calling to prepare the way for the one whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. John 3 is just one example of this. John 3, 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Listen to this. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. As John does his job, he works himself out of a job. And people indeed begin to follow the Lord Jesus. And John says that completes his joy. A man who joyfully pointed away from himself. It is that same humility now on display when John turns to Jesus and he asks, did I get it right? Did I get it right? So let me ask you, do you have the humility to ask Jesus where you have it wrong? Do you have the humility to hear where you have it wrong? Do you have the humility to put an issue before the Lord and to receive it if you discover that you have missed it? Do you have the kind of humility that confesses sin? and turns from it, can be brokenhearted over it. When you come face to face with where you're going astray, is it your response to, to bow up and to double down and to defend your ground? Or can you have the humility to yield to the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have the humility to admit to Jesus where you're struggling? This is what John does. He admits where he's struggling. And to admit it in a way that you don't delight in the struggle. You see, some people, they actually find joy in the spotlight being turned on them as they 
portray their struggle. Now, this is something different. Will you be honest with Christ about how you're struggling, but in a way that doesn't delight in the struggle and in a way that is willing to receive the answers for your struggle? Do you want answers? Do you want it to be different? Are you willing to receive the truth? Do you have the humility to embrace God's plan for your life when He takes you off center stage? When perhaps, metaphorically speaking, now you're sort of shut up in a prison? When His glory means your discomfort? I mean, that's God's plan for your life. He's going to be glorified in your life for this season and these circumstances while you walk through difficulty. Do you have the humility to be able to rejoice that Jesus is glorified even if it means your suffering? The first mark of this great man of God is that he was a humble man. You saw it in his life before he was in prison. You see it in his life as he is in prison. The second thing you see about him, Jesus makes so clear, and that is not only was he a humble man, he was a stable man, the stability of a man of God, the stability of a man of God. Jesus asks a question, and in so doing, he's highlighting character opposite that of John's character. Our Lord says this, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? He he highlights John's popularity. Hordes of people heading out into the wilderness to hear this man whom everyone regarded as a prophet. It's been about 400 years of silence. No prophet arose like John for a long, long time. And here is this man coming, coming out into the public, announcing the need for repentance, saying that he is the forerunner of the Messiah, people coming in droves to hear this man. Jesus asked, now, why did you go out to hear him? Because he could be blown around? Because he was like a a reed shaking in the wind? Obviously, our Lord speaking metaphorically, and the metaphor is not hard to understand. Shaking is saluo. Lexicon says, to cause to move to and fro, shake, cause to waver, totter, In the passive voice, to be shaken, to be made, to waver, totter. This wasn't John. We understand exactly what our Lord's describing because we live in a world full of people who are blown around. We live in a world full of people who are blown around to and fro with every wind. The culture moves them. We have men right now on the stage in evangelicalism who once preached one thing, and now that the culture has shifted, they're preaching something else. Why? Because the Scriptures changed? Or because the culture changed? The threat of disapproval moves people. The desire to be relevant and popular moves people. The desire to be seen as smart and current, right? No one wants to be seen as stupid, Simple, ignorant, that moves people. They're not constant, they're not stable. But John was stable. He wasn't moved by anything except the truth. That's who you went out to see. A stable man, 
A man who wasn't blown around. And by the way, though there are no John the Baptist today, God does give gifted men to His church. And the reason why those gifted men have been given to His church is so that the church, through learning the truth of God's Word, will grow into the likeness of Jesus. And as we grow into the likeness of Jesus, the kind of churches that are to be produced are churches that are not blown around with every wind of doctrine. Stable churches. Ephesians 4.11 says, And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Stable churches, the result, the fruit of the ministry of stable men. God giving those men, equipping those men, using those men who are not blown around like a reed shaken in the wind. And the result is churches that are not moved around like a reed shaking in the wind. This is what Butch Thomas means when in our church orientation class he says regularly, you know, we're not a church in search of an identity. We, we, we know what we believe. It doesn't mean we don't need to grow. It doesn't mean we won't learn new things. It doesn't mean if the Lord should show us that we've been wrong, we would not change course. We would. What it means is we are going to stand where the Word of God leads us. And because the Word of God doesn't change, this is not going to be a church in constant change. Maturity is seen in stability. John is not a weak man. John is not a fickle man. He is sturdy. He is fearless. He is courageous. He can stand alone. And this is what characterizes godly people. They're not man-pleasers. They're God-pleasers. Let me just say one thing quickly, though, about that last statement. Not man-pleasers, but God-pleasers. There's a way that God produces that that is the work of His Spirit and is godly. There is a counterfeit of that that is not produced by the Spirit of God, and it's not godly. There are people who pride themselves on their independence. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Nobody's going to influence me. I fear God. I don't fear men. The words may be right, but the Spirit is all wrong. Don't forget the first point. John was a humble man. This is a sturdiness that exists in humility. So someone who cannot be taught, someone who cannot be guided, someone who cannot be submissive, someone who cannot learn, someone who cannot admit their failures, someone who cannot confess their sins, this is not godly independence. That is sinful stubbornness. And that's not the work of the Spirit of God. That's that's fleshly. That's sinful. Do you understand the difference? Would you say amen? So this is a man who is stable, but he's a humble man. And because he fears God, he's a humble man, willing to be corrected, willing to admit that he's wrong if he's mistaken. He goes to the Lord Jesus looking for correction if there's correction to be made. 
Third, you see the loyalty of a man of God, the loyalty of a man of God. Jesus asks another question, but what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. John not only was stable, he wasn't for sale. He was manly, faithful, loyal, soft clothing. Malakos is the Greek word. In that word, at times, you know, in its lexical range, is the idea of effeminacy, someone who's effeminate. What he's describing is luxurious clothing, a pampered kind of life. What does he mean when he says you find that in king's palaces? Well, he could be simply saying, you didn't go out to see John because he lived in the luxury of a king, acknowledging that John was dressed in the garb of a prophet. And as we said this morning and saw from scripture, you know, he ate locusts and wild honey. I mean, this is a a man's man, he could simply be saying that, but I think he's saying something a bit more than that. I think what our Lord is wanting us to link up in our minds is the fact that people in positions of political influence love to use preachers. There is power in linking up political influence with religious influence, which is why throughout history, Wicked rulers have loved to have false prophets in their hire. And if you're willing to sell yourself, if you're willing to be a voice for the king instead of a voice for the king of kings, you can live in luxury. You can win for yourself a lifestyle where you are pampered. Just avoid the things you need to avoid. And say the things that you need to say to make the king exalted in the eyes of the people, regardless of his wickedness. I think about Micaiah in the Old Testament. If you would please look at 1 Kings 22 for just a moment. <clears throat> I know you're familiar with this, but I want to remind you. 1 Kings chapter 22. I won't read the entire account, but I think you'll see my point. 1 Kings 22, look at verse 1. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, now this is wicked Ahab, okay? The king of Israel said to his servants, do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us and we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? And he said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, inquire first for the word of the Lord. Ahab, I'm, I'm willing to go with you. We're willing to join you. But first, what does Yahweh think of this? What would he have us to do? Let's let's inquire of him. 
So, verse 6, then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? And they said, go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, I love this, is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? (laughs) Can we get a second opinion? What does Jehoshaphat recognize in that moment? These are 400 prophets for hire. These are 400 prophets who live in a king's palace. They enjoy Ahab's niceties. I don't know if they literally lived there, but they're at his beck and call. And no doubt he rewards them generously for such things as we just read. And Jehoshaphat says, in effect, can we get a real prophet? Someone who really speaks for Yahweh? Listen to this. Verse 8, And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Jehoshaphat has respect for a true messenger of the Lord. 400 prophets who enjoyed Ahab's finest, one faithful prophet who ends up in Ahab's prison. You go and read the rest of the story. This is where Micaiah ends up. He ends up in prison. John the Baptist could have been in Herod's palace if he had just avoided Herod's sin. But instead, he's in Herod's prison. And he's going to lose his life there. This is a man loyal to God. He is not for sale. You can't buy him. He's not like those prophets dressed in soft clothing. Do you know that your loyalty to God is going to be tested? Dear man, woman of God, do you know that your loyalty to God will be tested? It may be tested in the realm of your family. It may be tested in the realm of your friendships. It may be tested in the realm of your work. But it's going to be tested. Certainly it's going to be tested in this world. Godly people maintain that loyalty. We we sang about it tonight. Where else do we have to go? Our Lord alone has the words of eternal life. And we stake our lives, our eternity on His words. Where else can we go? This is a humble man. This is a stable man, not blown around like a reed in the wind. This is a loyal man. He's not like those prophets dressed in soft clothing. Fourth, note the faithfulness of a man of God, the faithfulness of a man of God. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is a prophet who was prophesied. This is a prophet who was chosen for a specific, special task. Verse 10, this is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. In reference to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. 
And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. Yahweh says, I'm coming. And Jesus quotes Malachi 3 to say, I'm here. I send my messenger ahead of you. Who does the you refer to? It refers to Jesus himself. Malachi foretold the fact that there would be a messenger who would come before the Messiah, and the Messiah is Yahweh in person, in the person of His Son. The people went out to see a prophet. Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. There's an Elijah-like figure who's going to precede the Messiah before the day of the Lord. And our Lord says in verse 14, if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Why is our Lord praising John the Baptist? Because he's fulfilled his calling. He's a special man who was specially prepared for, sent by God, John chapter 1, verse 6, and he has been faithful to his task. A faithful man. Luke chapter 1, verse 13 says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. This is John's father. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. They went out to see a man who fulfilled a purpose, a prophesied purpose. And John did exactly that, a faithful man. I've thought often about what the Scriptures say concerning David. In Acts chapter 13, verse 36, it says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. I love that phrase, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation. David had a purpose. John the Baptist had a purpose. You have a purpose. Not a prophesied purpose but a purpose nonetheless that Scripture clearly speaks of. Each of us as believers, the Bible is clear, saved, indwelt by the Spirit of God, gifted for ministry, to be living our lives to please Christ. The ambassadors of Christ, ministers of reconciliation. Are we going to be faithful to our purpose? The Bible gives you instruction about how to be a husband, how to be a father, how to be a wife, how to be a mother. It gives encouraging words for grandparents, men who lead others in the realm of work, men who work for others. What a godly household looks like, what a godly church looks like. Our purpose is all over the Word of God. The question is, do we have a heart to embrace that purpose and be faithful to it? Will we be found faithful in our generation 
What a generation it is. I was thinking before the sermon tonight, before we began singing tonight, the unique pressure cooker that the people of God find ourselves in at this moment. There's never been a time like this we're living in ever in the history of the world where because of the connectivity that exists through technology all over the planet, we are hearing around us constantly debauched ideas and debauched attitudes and temptations at every turn. What pressures we are under. Will we be found faithful in our generation? And do you know that the Lord is sufficient to strengthen you for faithfulness? And the Word of God is sufficient to equip you for faithfulness. Jesus praises John as a man who fulfilled his purpose. Will you fulfill yours? Will you be faithful? Godly people are faithful people. Humble people. Stable people. Loyal people. Faithful people. Fifth and finally, in John we see an example that that godly servants are rugged. The ruggedness of a man of God. Our Lord says in verse 12, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I'm going to return to these verses next Sunday morning because there's more here than I have time to deal with tonight. But tonight I want to say one thing from these verses. I want you to notice that what our Lord says here, in part, part of what He's describing, refers to a very narrow period of time. You see that in verse 12? From the days of John the Baptist until now. So think about John's appearance in ministry and think about our Lord speaking at this moment that He's speaking. And Jesus says that between that time and now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. It's a very difficult passage to understand, like I said, we're going we're to consider it more carefully next week. But there are two ways you might understand this. One is negative, the other is positive. The negative possibility is that this speaks of violence from those who are outside the kingdom. The Messiah has come, the kingdom is near, being announced, being offered. And there are wicked, violent people who are attacking it. From John until Jesus, there's been this violence of attack, resistance, rebellion, taking hold of it in the sense that they are hindering it. That's one possibility. The second possibility is that the kingdom is pressing forward forcefully despite being opposed, and those who are being saved are pressing their way 
into the kingdom. That is, they're embracing Christ and his kingdom regardless of those who stand in their way. And here's the good news. Both of those things were true. Both of those things were true. We're going to see it in increasing fashion as we continue from chapter 11 on. It's going to get more and more intense. As the opposition arises, as the rebellion of the nation of Israel is on display, as wicked, unbelieving people do everything in their power to stand against the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's also true that you're going to see the Lord gathering in His sheep who hear His voice and come to Him regardless of the cost. They take up their cross to follow Him. So both are true. John MacArthur had this to say. He said, The form Biazzo from which suffers violence comes can be read as either a Greek passive or middle voice. As a passive, it would carry the idea of being oppressed or treated violently, which would indicate that violence is brought on the kingdom of heaven by those outside of it. The Pharisees and scribes had attacked John verbally, and Herod had attacked him physically. The kingdom was being violently denied and rejected, and because it was being rejected in its spiritual dimension, the kingdom would not come in its earthly millennial dimension. Soon the enemies of the kingdom would kill not only John, but even the Messiah himself. They would destroy both the herald and the king. In the middle voice, the verb carries the active idea of applying force or of entering forcibly, in which case the translation would be, the kingdom of heaven is vigorously pressing itself forward and people are forcefully entering it. With its focus in John the Baptist, the kingdom moved relentlessly through the godless, sin-darkened human system that opposed it, close quote. Both are true. We'll deal with this more next week. But here's the point I want to make tonight. Either way you understand that, you cannot walk with Jesus Christ apart from a supernatural ruggedness. It is going to be difficult. There is violence associated with the kingdom of heaven. You can't walk with Jesus and not be persecuted. You can't walk with Jesus and not face a form of violence. You can't embrace Him unless you're willing to endure that. Walk with Him regardless of that. In other words, the Christian life is not for the faint-hearted, is it? Ministry is not for the faint-hearted. John the Baptist was involved in a work that was wrapped up with spiritual forces that meant a constant spiritual opposition, but eventually manifested itself in physical opposition as his prison condition testified. Ministry is not for those who are not prepared for conflict. So here then are the five characteristics of godly servants. They are humble. They are stable. They are loyal to God. They are faithful to their calling. And they experience from the hand of God, by the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit of God, a supernatural strength that enables them to walk on regardless of the opposition. They are rugged people. Gentle people, kind people, harmless people, and at the same time, rugged people. 
strong people, immovable people. And as we saw this morning, even as Jesus praises John, he explains John. In other words, John isn't John without Jesus, without God, without grace, without salvation, without divine help. It's not the messenger upholding the Messiah. It's the Messiah upholding the messenger. It's not the messengers upholding the Messiah. It's the Messiah upholding the messengers. And if you ask, what does it look like as he upholds us? He upholds us by teaching us humility. He upholds us by producing in us a stability. He upholds us by producing in us a loyalty and a faithfulness and a ruggedness. When we get to the end of our journey, dear ones, we will give all praise and all glory to the God who sustained us to the end. He saved us. He delivered us. He strengthened us. He sustained us. There's not one thing that will ultimately be explained by us. It will all be explained by Him. What a Savior. What a Savior. The people of God would say, Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You. Thank You for the people You produce. Thank You for the godliness that You produce. We, we do give you praise for your servants, even as our Lord gave us an example by praising one of your servants. We give you thanks for the people you've used to bless us and help us and are examples for us. And yet, in every single case, we bow our knees and we lift our voices to give you praise because you alone explain those faithful servants. The best of men are men at best. All of us are from the dust, and we return there. Our physical nature does. Seventy years of life, by reason of strength, eighty, but soon we, we go our way. We leave this temporal realm, and we enter into eternity, and every step of the way, we were completely dependent upon You. That's true in the physical realm, and Lord, that's true in the spiritual realm. You give us every spiritual breath, every spiritual heartbeat, every ounce of spiritual energy. If you don't sustain us, we are not sustained. And so we thank you that you, our faithful God, are at work in our lives producing these character qualities that can be called godly. Oh Lord, would you change us more and more into the image of your Son? Would you deal with our sins and bring us to the end of ourselves? Would you bring us to a place of brokenness where we are unwilling to protect even one sin and put it away from us, Lord, that we might live lives that glorify you. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.